If you know this psalm, could you complete it for me out loud? This is the day the Lord has made. As Dan said, you rocked. This is the best one. You all knew that. Great job. So yes, since we have the answer up here now for all of us, why don't we say this again with meaning and with a certain amount of gusto. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Back in the 80s and 90s, there was this television preacher named Robert Schuler who used to bring his hour of power from the Crystal Cathedral to us. And um, I wasn't a regular viewer of that program, but every so often I'd pass it as I was flipping through the channels. And he would start every program and every service with this psalm. And while I might not have agreed with everything he said or his theology, I really thought, what a wonderful reminder of how we should start each day. Because this truly is, every day truly is the day the Lord has made, and it gives us reason to rejoice and be glad in it. As Dan told you, I'm Gary Ireland. I'm the director of college ministry here. And for 30 years prior to that, I worked in colleges and universities around the Chicagoland area. And I had a variety of roles and responsibilities. Uh, and part of that uh, was working, or unofficial part of that, was working with uh, student athletes, particularly college football players. I've been a college football team chaplain for 30 years. Matter of fact, some are sitting back here today. So I uh, appreciate having them here. So, oh, thank you. <laughs> And a soccer player, I should say. So I don't want to, you know, exclude him or something like that. You know, you know, <laughs> Uh, I tell you this because uh, I grew up in this church. As a matter of fact, my parents started attending this church before there was even a church building. Uh, they started attending church here when they met at the, in the basement of the old Main Street School in downtown Lyle. That's not even here anymore. And then here is a picture of my uh, twin brother and I at our uh, baptism, uh, July 28th, 1963. That's in front of the original A-frame church there on Kimberly Way. It was a little over a year old at that time. And, and I share this with you because there's people in this church, matter of fact, there may be people in this room here today who knew me growing up, went to school with me. I see John Heglin down here. Uh, people who knew me growing up. And I think they would say that it is very funny uh, that I have spent a significant amount of time and there's a significant focus in my ministry to working with college student athletes. Because I very well may be the most unathletic person you may ever meet in your life. Now, my parents tried desperately to make an athlete of me. So they signed me up for the Youth Football League. They registered me for the, the Lyle Park District Summer Track and Field Program. I even did kind of competitive horseback riding for a year or two or something. But they had really hoped that I would become a baseball player, or that I would love baseball, and I would develop some skills in that area. Because my grandfather was a minor league baseball player, and so that's part of our family. But I have another picture of my twin brother and me, and, and this is us uh, before the start of a season. I, I think it's very clear, one of us was an athlete, and one of us was not. And, you know, and the thing that always amazes me about this picture is we're identical twins, and it does not look like that in this picture, I think because that silly grin that I have at the, the start of this season. So, 
I have memories of this baseball time. Uh, in Lyle, the lowest level of baseball was called Farm League. It was actually softball. And I think you were only supposed to be in it one year. I had three glorious years in it before they felt sorry for me and, and moved me up. So, But I have some memories. The first practice I went to, the coach said, well, what position do you play? And I had no idea what position I played. So, you know, they tried me at different things. And anyone who's been around youth baseball knows they decided I would be the perfect right fielder. Because, see, you know, because right field at that level is where you put the kid that has no athletic ability. So I, I uh, was out in right field, and I have some memories of this. Um, I, I particularly remember a coach, after some of the practices, telling me, and he wasn't trying to be mean or sarcastic. He said, you know, Gary, you should go home and talk to your parents because I think you might need an eye exam. I, you know, he couldn't believe how many balls that I couldn't catch or something that were thrown or, or hit to me. So I also remember that every time a left-handed batter would step up to the plate, the center fielder would come and stand right next to me. I'd be like, oh, hello there, welcome, good. But my most distinct memory is when I'd be out in right field and I'd hear the coach yell every so often, Ireland, stand up! You know, you know that level of baseball, those innings can get pretty long, so... But uh, I, I tell you all this about that I work with college athletes because working with college athletes, particularly football players, has shaped the way I speak and the, the, the way I share a message. So when I'm talking with, um, you know, 100 football players, especially if it's a few minutes before a game, there is a certain pitch, there is a certain pace, there is a certain purpose, there is a certain passion that I must bring to that message so I may engage them at that moment. But I've been told... Thank you. I have been told that is not the way I should preach this morning. So, but every so often the spirit grabs me and I, I may slip into my football chaplain mode. I'm just warning you right now. The, the other thing that I learned when talking to football players is you have to keep it short. And I'm sure no one will complain about that. It's very rare that you hear someone say, oh, I wish that preacher would have gone longer today. So as a matter of fact, one of the college students told me he's, he's timing me today. So he's going to give me a grade afterward is how I done. But as we begin this message, would you please bow your heads and join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we come before you today to hear your word, to hear it in a way that it shapes our lives according to your will and plan for us. Be with us now during this time together. Let your spirit fill this room and let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts and minds be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock, our redeemer, and our reason to rejoice. Amen. This is the third week in our Advent series, and in the first week, Mark talked to us about this, this man. This is Simon. Uh, Simeon, I'm sorry, Simeon. Simeon stood on, uh, sat on the steps of the temple in Jerusalem, and he sat there waiting to the, for the arrival of the promised Messiah. And he was rewarded for his waiting and his watching when he looked up and saw Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus arrive at the temple to dedicate Jesus. Mark reminded us that we should also, especially during a time if we're struggling with anything, look up and focus on God, both in this season and in our, in our faith lives. Dan reminded us last week about the story of John the Baptist, the voice of one crying in the wilderness to prepare a way for the Lord to make the crooked ways straight. John's message to the people of the day, but his message to us today as well, is a message of repentance. Dan reminded us this could be a time for us to align our lives with God, to focus on God, to prepare for his coming again. And today we're going to focus on the word rejoice, and we're going to look at the story of Mary. And the story begins in the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke, in the 31st verse, when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and tells her that through the Holy Spirit, she will conceive a son. 
Gabriel says, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. This is the same angel Gabriel that came to Zechariah in the temple. You see, Zechariah was serving his kind of shift in the temple, and he was in there burning incense, and the people were outside praying. And the angel Gabriel came to him and said that Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, even though they were beyond childbearing years, would conceive a son, and that son would be John, John the Baptist. We know that uh, Zechariah had some doubt about that, and so he was rendered mute until the such a time as John was born. But we know that Mary met this, this announcement from Gabriel with wonder and curiosity. And the scripture tells us that she left immediately to go see her relative Elizabeth in the hills of Judea. We can imagine one of the reasons she went to see Elizabeth is because she would have been one of the only people who would have understood this incredible story of maybe an angel's visit and an unlikely illogical pregnancy. When she arrived at the house of Zachariah and Elizabeth, she greeted Elizabeth, and Elizabeth, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. Upon hearing that greeting, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. These verses of Scripture are referred to as the Magnificat, because in the Latin translation of the Scripture, the very first word is Magnificat. That's a word that means to glorify. This is also called the, Son of, the Song of Mary or the Canticle of Mary. And in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, I love this, they refer to it as the Ode of the Theotokos, the Ode of the Mother of God. I'd like you to look at this last part. It's actually verse 48. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. This is not Mary being arrogant. This is not Mary being self-aggrandizing. This is Mary realizing that God is using her, a humble, normal, sinful human being, to bring about the promised Savior. She is boasting in the way that St. Paul tells us that if we boast, we should boast in the Lord because the Lord can do great things through you and I as she did through Mary. We think of Christmas time as a time of great joy, and it is a time of great joy. Remember, uh, angels singing and joy to the world and all this type of thing. But if we focus on that, especially this morning, we miss that there was a dark reality behind the scenes involving Mary. Mary knew that it would be difficult once she returned to the town of Nazareth after visiting Elizabeth. Take a look. When Mary returned to Nazareth, she knew that she would face gossip and rumors and jeers. We know that this was going to be a difficult time. We know in the Old Testament that the punishment for adultery, which what she would have been accused of because she was engaged or betrothed to Joseph, the punishment for that in the Old Testament would have been death by stoning. 
Now, at this time, the Romans ruled the area, and they wouldn't allow the Jews to carry out their punishments. But what would have happened, and Mary was aware of this, that if Joseph didn't believe her story, and we later learned that an angel came to him and told him and confirmed exactly what Mary was saying to him, but if Joseph wouldn't have believed that, that he would have taken her before the town elders, and they would have questioned her, and he would have told them that this child was not his, she would have faced the rest of her life ridicule and shame. She would have been shunted by the community. And we know that even though we know how the story goes and we, and we know what happened, that Mary still faced this a little bit through the rest of her life. Instead, later on, when the crowds were trying to figure out who Jesus was, they said, well, isn't that, the, the, we knew him when he grew up, isn't that the carpenter's son? Isn't that Mary's son? And it may have just been a, a simple question about his identity, but we can also imagine there was a little sarcasm in that. There was a little bit about, isn't that Mary's son? You know, that son? But Mary had an internal joy, which she shared with Elizabeth, in knowing that she was going to have her Lord and Savior, our Lord and Savior. But it doesn't mean that she was always happy. And biblically speaking, there is a difference between happiness and joy when we look at different verses. Happiness is an external feeling based on circumstances, whereas joy is an internal attitude that defies circumstances. There is a researcher by the name of Barbara Fredrickson. She's a psychologist. She's done extensive research on joy and happiness and positivity. She's written a few books about this. And she comes to that same conclusion in her research. She says, joy and happiness seem similar, but they are very different. Joy is internal. It comes when you make peace with who you are. Happiness is external, triggered by people, things, places, thoughts, and events. You know, in our culture, uh, we frequently use joy and happiness interchangeably. Matter of fact, if you Google them or look them up, uh, look, I was going to say in a dictionary. Some people don't know what dictionaries are. Some of the, but if you look them up, uh, that you'll find they're often synonyms for each other. And in her research, they found that's not true. It's also not true biblically. But I also need to point out that as a Christian, joy is internal, but it comes when you make peace with who you are in Christ as a forgiven, loved child of God. Mary knew that this joy was something internal in spite of what was happening around her. As a matter of fact, she said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. She very easily could have said, I magnify the Lord and I rejoice in God my Savior. But she knew that that joy was actually something a little bit more deeper. Now we have to uh, be honest with each other that this can be a pretty difficult time of year. People struggle this time of year with loneliness and depression. People struggling with memories of, of loved ones lost. People are struggling with unemployment or underemployment or illnesses. And to be quite honest, sometimes this is a difficult time for me in my life. See, my mother battled cancer for three and a half years. And it was two years ago on this very date, December 10th, that we held her funeral and we said our earthly goodbyes. And I can remember and I feel a joy knowing she's in her eternal home in the arms of her loving Savior. But I, if I'm to be quite honest, this brings up a lot of memories, and especially of those last days as I sat by her bedside when she was in hospice care. And I know other people have those same feelings. This can be a very difficult time of year. It reminds me of this story of a man named Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford was a very successful lawyer and businessman in the mid-1800s in Chicago. And he and his wife, Anna, had five children, a son and four daughters. 
And their son died suddenly from scarlet fever. And soon after that, his entire fortune was virtually wiped out in the great Chicago fire. Anna and Horatio knew that they needed to take their family on a holiday, on a vacation to England. And right as they were about to set sail, he discovered that he had business that he needed to finish in Chicago. So he sent Anna and the four daughters ahead with the promise that he'd meet up with them as soon as he, he could. A few days later, Horatio received a telegram from Anna. It had appeared that their ship, their ship had had an accident and sunk in the ocean. And all she said to him in the telegram was, saved alone. You see, as their ship crossed the ocean, it collided with another vessel, and the ship that Anna and her daughters were, were on sunk in a matter of minutes, and all four daughters drowned. It's only by a miracle of God that Anna survived. It was says she was discovered unconscious when a debris, piece of debris from the ship floated up and lifted her up. Horatio found a ship that he could leave as soon as possible on, and he left to be with his grieving wife. And the captain of that ship called him on deck, on, on, on deck of the ship, when the ship was passing approximately over a, uh, the point where his daughters had drowned. That would be the closest Horatio would ever be to his daughters again. And it's said that he went down into the cabin of that ship and he wrote the words to a hymn which gives comfort and inner peace and joy to thousands and thousands of people. At that very moment of grief, he wrote, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Clearly, this was man, a man who was not happy. He was dealing with unimaginable grief, and yet he could still say with this joyful peace, it is well, it is well with my soul. As a reminder, we, we think about happiness is a feeling based on circumstances where joy is an attitude, an internal attitude that defies circumstances. If we really think of synonyms, maybe happiness isn't the best synonym from joy when we're speaking from it from a, a Christian perspective. Maybe we should think of peace as a more appropriate synonym for joy. And in that spirit, Paul writes to the church in Rome, and he speaks to us as well when he says, rejoice in hope, endure in affliction, persevere in prayer. He says virtually the same thing to the church in Thessalonica, excuse me, the Thessalonians. He writes, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus like to take just one minute to review the rest of that Magnificat that Mary spoke or sung, because it talks a lot about joy, and it summarizes what really is joy in the Lord. Mary continued on saying, he, meaning God, he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. You see, Mary knew that there was more to joy. If we were to summarize these verses, we'd summarize them by saying joy is found in a God who is merciful. Joy is found in a God who keeps his promises from generation to generation. 
Joy is found in a God who cares for us. Joy is found in a God who has made us his own, in a God who has given us his spirit, and in a God who saves us. When my mother was first diagnosed with cancer, I remember that she said to me she didn't know if she was going to go to heaven. She had concerns that maybe she wasn't good enough to go to heaven. This was a woman who grew up in the church her entire life, went to Lutheran schools her entire life, and how great it was for us to talk and, and for us to remind each other about the gift we get of, of, of eternal life by grace through faith. But I need to say to you today, if you're wondering if you're good enough, if you're good enough to go to heaven, I have to tell you quite bluntly, no, you are not good enough to go to heaven. I am not good enough to go to heaven. No one who has ever walked the face of the earth, who is on the earth now, who has ever walked the face of the earth, except for Jesus Christ, is good enough to go to heaven on their own. You see, we like to put sin on a continuum. We like to think of sin as um, uh, you know, less sinful or more sinful. Quite honestly, it allows us to say, well, I may be a sinner, but I'm not as bad as that person. But the reality is sin is not on a continuum. Sin is a yes or no question. Have you sinned? Are you a sinner? Yes or no? And the answer to that question for me and for you and for everyone is yes, we are sinners. And because of that, we all fall short of the glory of God. But the great news to hear this morning from Ephesians 2 is that we are saved by grace through faith. We are saved by the undeserved, unearned, free gift of forgiveness that comes to us through faith and believing that Jesus Christ paid the price on that cross so that we may be made right with God and live with him eternally. And that is the source, ultimately, of our joy. And so, as Mary rejoiced in the birth of her Savior, as Elizabeth rejoiced in the presence of her Savior, as we rejoice in the coming of our Savior. May the God that gives us a peace which surpasses all human understanding also fill us and fill you and sustain you with the internal joy that defies all circumstances. Please join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we know, we know you are the source and fountain of all our joy. But too often we let circumstances and situations and difficulties rob us of that joy. We look to things to make us happy rather than acknowledge you at work in us through the Spirit to give us joy. Be with us now in these days ahead to come closer to you, to let our lives be an example, to let our lives and our souls magnify and glorify you, to let us rejoice in you every day as our Lord and Savior. Amen.